Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, it's, it's a minor prophet, or he's a major prophet just, just before the minor prophet. So he's right between Ezekiel and the rest of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. So as you're looking through your Old Testament, you're just past midway in your Bible there, you'll find um, Daniel, chapter, Daniel, and then just go to the seventh chapter in the first verse. That's where we're going to be. Daniel chapter 7, I'm actually going to start by reading from verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words of that, that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let me pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, at this chapter, at this prophecy, this apocalyptic vision that you gave to your servant Daniel for the sake of your people, pray that your spirit would be at work to help us understand what it is that you were communicating to your people then and, and to us now. Who it is that was being pointed to your son Jesus. That we would both rightly fear you and that we would find comfort and hope in you. That we would understand that suffering is, is great around us and that we would have hope in the face of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a young man, I was involved in a youth group, and I still remember the days in the youth group when um, the youth pastor would pull out this incredible movie that I was always so thrilled to watch called The Thief in the Night. If you're a child of the 80s, you know what I'm talking about, the 70s. Most, some of you, though, don't even know what I'm referring to at all. There's a decade called the 80s, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was bad, yeah. Okay, the 70s were worse. But anyway, there was a, uh, a movie series that came out, and, and uh, one of the movies was called The Thief in the Night. And anybody who watched at the time, including me, knows that it, it, it quite literally scared the, right, out of you. It scared you. It was spooky. You guys know what I'm talking about? Have you seen it? And I remember thinking to myself, well, this... This is the return of Jesus. Now, mind you, I don't know if I was a believer at this time or not. This is the return of Jesus, and is this supposed to scare me this bad? Am I supposed to think about the return of the King of kings and Lord of lords to start a new heavens and new earth and be spooked out? And I subsequently from that became 
um, pretty spooked out by this kind of literature at all, whether it's the book of Revelation or Ezekiel or Daniel. The imagery was strange. The prophecies were scary. I wondered if I had to, you know, maybe participate in dropping mushrooms in order to understand it. I wasn't exactly sure how I came about reading this literature. And so I sort of put the whole thing aside. I thought to myself, how is this beneficial to me as a believer at all? This literature is strange. This literature is mysterious. It's spooky. It's hard to understand. And I realize, though, that our culture is fascinated with this literature, aren't we? We're fascinated with what we might call the end times. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the eschaton or eschatology, the last things. We're fascinated by these passages in the Bible. In fact, we're so fascinated by them that many people joke that there's three ways to pack out a church. If you want to pack out a church, you talk about one of three things. Sex, the end times, or sex in the end times. That's how you do it. Prophecy conferences, Bible colleges, churches, denominations, political campaigns, and publishing companies have all been started on the premise of a kind of strange interpretation of these texts. With the newspaper in one hand and these texts in the other, people try to push every detail to match up with some literal, physical, historical fulfillment. And as a result, books like the book of Revelation or this portion of Daniel become mysterious and spooky and seem inaccessible and unhelpful to the average Christian. Because not only do I have to understand this text, I have to understand how to do the math of what's going on in history and match those things up. And that's not a proper way. I'm going to tell you that that's not a proper way to approach this kind of literature. You don't read this with the newspaper in your other hand. And you might start to go, "Uh uh-oh. Here's where Chad goes off the rails and finally becomes a liberal. He doesn't believe the Bible's literal. Let me reassure you that I'm as crazy a biblical conservative as ever. Take heart, right? And I believe the Bible should be interpreted literally. But there's a meaning for that. This means I believe that the Bible should be interpreted or scripture ought to be interpreted according to its literary genre or the type of literature it is. For example... We read poetry as poetry, don't we? We read historical narrative as historical narrative. And you know that already based on your reading of texts outside the Bible because you don't read a novel the same way you you read a poem and you don't read a poem the same way you read the newspaper. At least you shouldn't. If you didn't know that, (laughs) that's probably why you're confused, right? If I read a poem, let me give you an example. If I read a poem that said, Her teeth are like a flock of freshly shorn sheep, right? That's actually in the Bible, incidentally. You wouldn't accuse me of misreading the text if I said, well, what the poet clearly means is that she has a nice smile. She has all her teeth, and they're white, and they're straight. And in some places, that's a big deal, like Oildale, for example, right? (laughs) We understand the compliment and why that would be great poetry. You guys follow me? (laughs) (laughs) That's bad. I know. I should take it back. Can anything good come from Oildale? Yes, clearly. Good things can. All right. Look, here's the thing. There is apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And apocalyptic literature is a particular genre or type of literature that we're less familiar with in our culture. We don't use apocalyptic literature in our culture. 
And, but it has to be read in a particular way. That's why it's strange to us because it's not a kind of literature that we tend to employ. But apocalyptic literature is prophetic and visually graphic and rich with biblical imagery. Because of all its gra- graphic imagery, your approach should be first to look for an overall thematic correspondence between an image that you have in the literature and its meaning, and not a detailed correspondence that matches every point of the image with some physical or historical fulfillment. For example, Daniel describes Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in verse 4 of Daniel 7. If you look there, the first, speaking of the first, these beasts, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. When we read that Babylon slash Nebuchadnezzar are described like a lion with eagle's wings, we aren't to imagine that that's a description of Nebuchadnezzar's appearance. So why is he described that way? It's some kind of a representation of him and his kingdom. Further, because apocalyptic literature is rich with biblical imagery, we're to let scripture interpret scripture as to its meaning. So, for example... In more than one place in Scripture, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are referred to as a lion. Also in more than one place in Scripture, they're referred to as an eagle. And a lion with eagle's wings, so you know, was the known symbol of the Babylonian kingdom. In fact, if you came up to the, the castle, or the, what you might call a castle now, in Babylon, if you came up to that residence, the royal residence, you would see lions with eagle's wings. So you understand what's happening in the apocalyptic literature. There's an image that's representing something, but not every point of that image has correspondence to something that's necessarily physical. You guys follow me on that? Further, we need to understand that apocalyptic literature is crisis literature. This is probably the single biggest key to reading it. It's crisis literature. What do I mean by that? It means that when apocalyptic literature is written is while the people of God are in the midst of a crisis. For example, in the book of Daniel, what's the context? If you look at verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. In other words, Daniel is having these visions that we read in chapter 7 during the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon. This is late in the Babylonian rule over Israel. But here's the point. Israel has been conquered, has been put into exile, and these people are, God's people are now being persecuted. They're being treated badly. They have an evil, wicked king. All is not well. And by the way, Israel is not at this point beginning to regain strength. What's happening is everybody knows that Medo-Persia is on the march. The Median and Persian Empire had combined, and they were on the march coming for Babylon, which meant we're just going to be replaced. We're going to replace one wicked king with another wicked king. It's going to be horrific for us from here on out. You understand the crisis they're in? This is the crisis they're in. You can imagine it if another country conquered our country and enslaved us and persecuted us, you would understand what it means to be in a crisis. That's where they're at. That's the context of the book of Daniel. What's the context of the book of Revelation? Another apocalyptic book. The context is one of two places, according to scholars, either A, from, six, from AD 67 to AD 70 under Nero, when Nero was the Roman Caesar and was persecuting the Christians, i.e. blaming the burning of Rome on the Christians, taking the Christians and wrapping them in candle wax on the street and using them as candles, right? That would be pretty big crisis moment, right? 
As Jerusalem was sacked, the temple's destroyed, the diaspora happens as the people go off into Europe to avoid Roman persecution. It either happened, it was, Revelation was either written then, or it was written during the rule of Diocletian, another horrific emperor who persecuted the Christian people. In either case, I favor the Nero the authorship during Nero. But in either case, the point is, whether it's you're talking about Revelation or Daniel, the people are in a crisis when the literature is written. You follow me? So the literature is meant to address a crisis. And it's always written during a crisis to remind God's people that no matter how grim things look, God is still on the throne. No matter how bad it looks out there, the Lord is still ruling And it generally has, so you know, apocalyptic apocalyptic literature generally has three messages in its visions. And I want you to see these as we go through Daniel 7 through 12. So I want you to sort of note them in your mind. You don't have to write them down, but at least note them in your mind. There are three messages in its vision, in these visions. One, there's always a message of encouragement to the believers who are suffering persecution. Always a message. You will overcome and God will vindicate you. Always that message for believers. In every kind of apocalyptic literature, you go to Revelation, you'll find that message to believers over and over and over again. You will overcome. God will vindicate you. He is the one on the throne. So there's that message of encouragement. Second, there's always a message of judgment to those who are persecuting God's people. It's a message that the Lord will utterly destroy you. You look powerful now. You think you're in charge, but God is coming to judge the living and the dead. And then the third message that's always in this kind of literature is a message of warning to those who are sitting on the fence. That they better choose sides before it's too late. Maybe some of you are there. You're not sure if you're more in love with the world or Jesus. You're kind of sitting on the fence. You don't want to commit. And there's always a message in apocalyptic literature for you. Choose sides because God is coming soon. And it won't be pretty if you're not on the right side. So I hope you'll see that as we look through the next several chapters of Daniel. And as you do, I hope you'll be blessed by this kind of literature in the Bible rather than spooked out by it as something strange and scary and inaccessible. That's what I'm hoping. That's my goal. So let's walk through the text here and drive at what the central message is and how it's a help to Daniel's audience. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7 with me and we'll just walk through this chapter Briefly, look at a couple of points of how it's helpful to us. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now understand this, the beginning of this vision, he sees these four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. What are the four winds of heaven? Why four? Why not three? How come not six? Four is probably referring to the idea of the points on a compass, north, east, south, and west. In other words, the winds are sweeping from every direction across the earth, coming across this great sea. And why the great sea? Well, I want to hit on that in just a second. Look there. It's coming across the great sea. And verse three, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So we have these beasts. Those aren't creatures of comfort, so you, might, so you know, right? 
This isn't the encouraging part of this text. Here come these four great beasts up out of the sea. Or, and, and why are they coming out of the sea? Because the sea throughout scripture, so you understand, is a place of chaos. It's where Leviathan is. If you go to, for example, even Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was what? Formless and void. And the spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. And then out of that chaos of the sea, the spirit then begins to order creation. Day one, day two, day three, day four. And we get an ordering of all of creation. And throughout the rest of scripture, we find again and again these, these implications or these pointing to the fact that the sea is this place where Leviathan is. It's this place of fear, of chaos. It's this place maybe that's evil. Now, it's not saying the ocean is evil. You understand that, right? It's not saying that. It's saying what, what you probably feel if you ever stand at the edge of a great ocean and look at it and are overwhelmed by its power and think to yourself, whatever's in there could destroy me. I need to get to land quickly. You guys ever had that feeling? So he goes on. Four great beasts come up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. This is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. What here is being pointed to is what we read about in Daniel chapter 4, that Nebuchadnezzar is this lion with eagle's wings, that he is humbled, and that he is then be, his reason is then returned to him. He's saying, I'm describing for you the first great beast coming up out of that great sea. That first one is Babylon. And this whole prophecy corresponds to Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue. But here, instead of a statue, Daniel sees four beasts. And the first one is Babylon, then the second one. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to rise, devour much flesh. Now, why do we have a bear that's raised up on one side? Again, like the lion with eagle's wings, it's deformed, right? In this case, instead of being a lion with eagle's wings, though, the deformity is that it's raised up on one side. Most scholars think this is a reference to the fact that uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, which was a joint empire, was bigger in the Persian side. It was, the Persian side was the stronger side of that empire. That's why the bear is lopsided here. But the point is he's lopsided. And he has three bones in his teeth. Why three? Because he couldn't fit four, maybe. I don't know. And honestly, I don't know. Nobody does know. The picture, I think, is instead of trying to find some specific correspondence between, well, he conquered these three nations because Medo-Persia conquered a lot more than three. It seems to be this idea that he's devouring everything in his path, which is what Medo-Persia did. Verse 6, after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. Again, a, a weird-looking creature, right? Strange-looking. Why a leopard? It's very fast. Why four wings? It makes it even faster. What is this a reference to? The kingdom of Greece. Greece comes in and conquers this area faster than anybody's ever known. Under the emperor we know is Alexander the Great. In 10 years, he conquers the whole known earth at the time. Comes in like a leopard with four wings on a, of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads 
and dominion was given to it. Why four heads? Now, this is where people start to try to correlate, and it doesn't always work because they can't figure out what to do with the three ribs. Now they want to take the four heads and say, well, after Alexander the Great died, it was split up. The kingdom was split into four under Ptolemy, Seleucids, Cassander, and Lysimachus. So clearly that's the four heads referring to the four kingdoms. But we don't know that. It's really hard to make that kind of specific connection. It's probably very similar to what's happening with the four winds, which is this idea that he's covering all the earth. He's conquering all the known area. Everywhere you can see, north, south, east, and west, Greece is conquering. This kingdom is doing that. It's probably more likely the connection here. But he has these four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, verse 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Now notice, this beast, beast doesn't even get an animal name. Terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this is some kind of ugly beast with iron teeth and ten horns. You can imagine it's not a good-looking beast, right? Daniel sees. And this is describing the Roman Empire, which tramples everything under its feet. Roman Empire was described by some people of the day as, as, being, a, as being an empire that swept into the area, made it a desert, and called it peace. Essentially what this beast is doing I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in, his, in his, this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. What's happening here is that you essentially have these four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Incidentally, two of those kingdoms being predicted before they ever came to be. Say, well, what about Medo-Persia? Well, Daniel was alive during the time of Medo-Persia. So he saw Babylon and he saw Medo-Persia. What Daniel did not see is Greece and Rome, but he saw them in a vision. He describes them actually in more detail in the coming chapters. But here, at the very least, we start to see that Daniel's pointing out to us something prophetic. There are two great kingdoms coming after the two that we're living through at the time of the writing of this book. There's not just Babylon and Medo-Persia, but we are going to be oppressed and conquered by two further kingdoms, Greece and Rome. And out of that last kingdom, that fourth kingdom, the most terrifying of those beasts, there will come ten kings or ten kingdoms. And there will be one that comes after them, this little horn. And he'll make three more bow down. And who is he? And who are the three? And who are the ten? None of us know. It's a fact. We don't know. Why 10? See, scholars will go in and try to correspond this to specific details. And they say, well, in some scholarship, we can find that maybe there were nine kingdoms. And in some, we can find that maybe there were 11 kingdoms. And we're not quite sure. But what we do know is all the time in the Bible, the number 10 speaks of fulfillment or completion. So perhaps the point here is that there's a perfect number of kingdoms that are coming, whatever is the complete number that God has in mind, of human kingdoms that are coming, the final one being this kingdom led by the one we know as the Antichrist, the beast, the one that we read about in Revelation, that he is that last kingdom. And in him, what's interesting is, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. In other words, in some way, he looks around and seems wise. And his mouth is speaking great things. It's like blasphemous things. He's prideful. 
He's a blasphemer, but he looks wise, and he's the last and final king among men. So he sees this grim picture. That's what Daniel has. He has before him a vision that this isn't the end of their suffering. That wouldn't be particularly encouraging at this point, would it? Just so you know, you're under Babylonian rule. It's only going to get worse from here. Thanks, Lord. That's great news. But actually what happens is, is he gets another part of the vision. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. What's interesting is that here comes all of these kings and they look powerful. But their kingdoms all last a short period of time. And what Daniel says, at the same time I see these worldwide kings who look powerful and whose kingdoms look to endure for generations, what I see at the same time is I see the one who truly sits on the throne, the real king. And his kingdom, and he's the ancient of days. His kingdom is forever. And he goes on and he says, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Probably white as well because of the fact that this line is, there's some symmetry in the poem here. But um, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. What's that referring to? Why is there an emphasis here on his white clothing and his pure white hair? It's an emphasis on his holiness, his cleanness, his purity. What's the contrast? The contrast is what's come before. All of these deformed animals. If, see, if you know anything about Levitical law, if you go back and read like the book of Leviticus, for example, you'll start to find that at more than one place in Levitical law, we are told that deformed animals are unclean. They're unholy. They're not of the Lord. So here's the distinction. Unclean, unholy animals or kingdoms versus the holy kingdom or king. You follow the distinction there? These kings are temporary and unclean and unholy. And God is going to wipe them off of the face of the earth because he is the king who is holy and eternal. That's the distinction Daniel's seeing right now. His throne was fiery flames. Again, a focus on his holiness and his justice. Its wheels were burning fire. Why does his throne have wheels? Because it moves to and fro about the earth. It's speaking of the fact that he is everywhere present. A, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Here comes judgment. Here comes the fire of his judgment. Daniel's seeing this. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. In other words, the multitudes around his throne were so great, Daniel was incapable of numbering them. So you know, in the ancient civilization, 10,000 was the greatest number they could imagine. So 10,000 times 10,000 is beyond any multitude that they can possibly imagine. Daniel can think about writing down. His point is, you see these kings, their kingdoms look great. They look like they last a long time. They look powerful. But you need to know something. There is a holy God who's on his throne. And he's going to utterly judge them. He's eternal. He's the ancient of days. He is everywhere present. And his kingdom so outsurpasses theirs that it's not even possibly numbered. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Last thing you need to know, God is going to judge all of these evil kingdoms. 
Daniel says, I looked, verse 11, then because of the sound of the great words, the blasphemous words, the prideful words, that the horn, that's the Antichrist, was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. In other words, this day is coming where this Antichrist will arise. He has not yet come. Paul refers to him in 2 Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness. But this day is coming when this Antichrist will arise, and he will look quite powerful, and he will speak great things, blaspheming and taking pride in himself. And you see this scene, and imagine the scene in which he, he starts to overcome the people of God, which Daniel will talk about in a minute. And he starts to surround the earth, and he looks all-powerful. He looks like his kingdom will last a long time. And when you read something like Revelation chapter 20, as you read it, you get to this anticlimactic saying. This guy has built this incredible kingdom. He's the most powerful man in the history of the world. He is the most powerful king ever. He sweeps across the earth, is murdering God's people. He looks unstoppable, and it says, and fire came down from heaven and consumed him. That's it. Looks like he is an unstoppable march across the earth, and fire comes down and consumes him. It's over. And if you look here, you see the same thing. I looked then because the sound of the great words that that horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And he's cast in the lake of fire, as we read in the book of Revelation. Then he goes on, he says, I saw in the night visions, verse 12, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now I want to stop there for a second because this vision is picked up often in the New Testament. But I want you to pick up the contrast. Here come these great beasts out of the sea where chaos and wickedness is. And now here comes this one like a human being. Here's these deformed, unclean, unholy beasts coming up out of the sea. And now here's this one like a human being, like a son of man, but literally like a human being coming with heaven, with the clouds of heaven. You see the contrast there? He's the holy one. He's divine. He's the true king. So we know all throughout the Old Testament, it's referenced again and again, that God comes with the clouds of heaven. So when this one who's coming, he's coming with the clouds of heaven, and he's coming with the clouds of heaven, and he's a human being. He's one like a son of man. And we ask, who's this referring to? Well, Jesus says it's referring to himself. And we'll get there in a bit. And he came to the ancient of days, that being the father, and was presented before him, and to him, to him, the one coming with the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And you go, Amen. Come soon, Lord Jesus. I feel much better now. But that isn't what happens with Daniel, is it? If you look at verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Why is that? How can he see a vision of the Christ, a vision of God's eternal rule, and still be alarmed and anxious and concerned? You know why that is? Because he cares about the very real people that are going to be persecuted and suffer and die in the meantime. 
In other words, the Bible doesn't imagine some kind of spirituality where we all stick our heads in the sand and pretend like the life isn't hard around us and say, I have hope in God. If I have real faith, I won't notice all the suffering around me. That isn't true. Real faith stares suffering in the face, recognizes it for what it is, mourns it, grieves over it, is even anxious about it, and at the same time says, but I know my hope is in Christ. And he's struggling with that. Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there, and we don't know who that is, somebody who's there in the vision, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. In other words, I need you to explain this to me. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, the four kingdoms. You've heard me say that already. Shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive. Now I want you to hear this. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Forever and ever. You hear the emphasis there? These four kingdoms are going to rise and they're going to be bad. But the saints shall possess the kingdom forever. Forever and ever. Emphasis, Daniel's. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and it seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That's why he's troubled. The Antichrist makes war on the saints and prevails over them. He's winning. Verse 22, until. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Second time that's said. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, Rome. That's what the kingdom is. Which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, this one is coming, this Antichrist is coming, and he wants to change the whole ball game. And he's going to prevail over God's people. And he's going to prevail over them for how long? A time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half if you did the math. Time being one, times being two, half a time. One plus two plus a half is three and a half, right? In Revelation, we pick up this reference of 42 months, which is three and a half, right? 36 months is three years. Six more months is half. You follow me on that? Why three and a half years or three and a half times? What's the point there? What's a complete cycle of time? Seven. Seven days of creation. Seven years to the Sabbath year. On the seventh seven, you have the year of Jubilee. There's this sense in which 
this man will rule, this Antichrist will rule, and the point is, he's going to rule for a short time. The point isn't try to get down his, the details of his kingdom. Let's figure out. It started on January 1st, is the, and then it ends this. Is that 42 months, or is that 39.5 months, or where do we exactly mark the beginning? These guys do this. Here's the point. He's going to rule a short time. Why do I say that? Look at the contrast. Verse 26. But the court, that's God's court, shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Hear what's happening? There is a time, Daniel, you need to understand this, Daniel. There are four kingdoms under which your people will suffer, and the fourth kingdom is not like any other. And ten, ten kings shall come from them, and after that, one king who will rule over the earth in a way unseen before him. One who will rule in a way not like anybody's ever seen before. That man Paul calls the man of lawlessness. That man who will try to be the game changer in all things. And he will seem to be all powerful. He will seem to be unstoppable, but his rule will be cut short because God will sit in judgment and God's kingdom will be given to God's people when God's Christ, the one like a son of man, comes with the clouds of heaven and judges all all things, and he will rule and reign forever, and you will be his people. That's the story. Here is the end of the matter, verse 28. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. You can understand why he'd be greatly alarmed. I hope you've noticed that the central message of this text is that God is the only sovereign and that he's giving all things to his son and the people of his son. And the reason I say that's a central message and important to remember is that first, again and again, it's emphasized that these wicked kings were given dominion. They didn't have it on their own. They didn't take it. It was given to them and it's taken away from them. It's given them by the sovereign decree of God who is the one who's on the throne and it's taken away from them by the sovereign decree of God who is the one who's on the throne. Second, you notice the flow of the text. Things look really bad in the first eight verses, but then I looked and I saw God on the throne. In the year this great king died, we're all a mess, right? You have a great king. You've had wicked kings in the past. You finally have a good king. You're going to be a mess when he dies because you don't know what's coming next. We worry about elections and they only last a four-year cycle, right? These kings could rule for 60 years plus. Their kingdoms look massive, but God's is too big to count. Their kings look powerful, but God is the judge. Their kingdoms seem long, but Jesus' king is eternal. These kings are wicked and God is holy. Third, there are three times we're told that God's people inherit the kingdom with Jesus. In verse 18 and verse 22 and verse 27, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. You receive it. Notice we don't go build the kingdom. Never in the Bible will you find any active verb. Here's just a bailiwick I want to get on real quick. Never find any active verb that says we build the kingdom. We ought to be about building the kingdom. Never says that we receive the kingdom. That's what it says. It's always passive. We see the only active word is we proclaim it. We let people know about the kingdom. But we water, or some water, some sow, but God gives the increase. I didn't even technically plant a church, right? I planted a church. No, Jesus will build his church. I sow in water, 
God gives the increase. God builds his kingdom. And in this case, we receive it. We as the saints of God will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Verse 22 These guys rule until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. See, the whole chapter is a picture of God telling Daniel, you and the rest of God's people will suffer for a long time under wicked kingdoms. And it will be hard, but don't forget who God is. You need to know that I'm sending one like a son of man. He is coming with the clouds, and he will set up the eternal kingdom of God, and you will prevail with him, and the blessings of that kingdom will be yours forever, forever and ever. And Jesus understood that this prophecy was about him. In fact, he cites it when he's brought before the council at his trial before his death. And they led Jesus in Mark 14. They led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself in the the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? See, before we leave this text, I, I, wanna, I just want to remind you of two things that I want to make sure you don't, re, you don't miss. We are warned, this is the first thing, we are warned not to reject or take, take lightly the holiness and sovereignty and judgment of God that is coming in his Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, in this text. Don't take it lightly. If you're an unbeliever here, or you're someone sitting on the fence, you understand that, you're a, you're, that you are not a member of God's kingdom, but a member of the kingdom of darkness. And God's court will sit in judgment. And God's son, Jesus, will return to judge the living and the dead. And you will be caught up in that judgment. And you will be cast into the fire with the Antichrist. See, if you look to him now, you'll be saved. If you do not look to him, be warned. God is patient. 
but his patience does know an end. And today could be the last day that you draw a breath. So you don't know his patience will last past the day with you, do you? And make no mistake, it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. So I implore you to be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. If you're not a believer, I implore you to look to him. Look to Jesus as your only salvation and hope from God's wrath. Look to him, repent of your sins, and know, know that his death on the cross paid for all your sins, and his resurrection from the dead guaranteed your justification before God. Trust him. He will forgive you your sins. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will give you new life. You will be his child, and you will receive the kingdom and live with him in the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. If you're a believer here today, I want you to grasp something that I think we often miss, which is that this chapter makes claims that are bold and that are all-encompassing. The claims here do not allow any moderate, vanilla, tame, isn't Jesus nice for my family and for public morals kind of Christianity. If this chapter is true, then the way you see all of history, all of human history is reshaped. If this chapter is true, then the one thing Christianity can never be is incidental or a nice addition to your life or something you subscribe to on Sundays. If the claims of this chapter are true, then you need to make a decision right now and every moment of every day after this as to whom you serve. See, here's the question. Are you like the kings in Daniel's book who serve Daniel's God when he might give you some personal happiness, i.e., Daniel, I don't believe in your God, but can you appeal to your God on my behalf because I need to be happier. I need my way. I want things to go my way. In other words, do you come to Jesus for the gifts that he gives? Do you come to the master for the food that's on his table, or do you come to him for the love of the master? Why do you come to him? Are you coming in some benefit for your own personal gain? Or are you coming to him because he is the Lord of Lords, he is the King of Kings, he is the Savior, and you have no hope apart from him? What's it about? You have to make a decision. You can't say, I'm going to ask Daniel's God to do something for me, or I'm going to ask my parents' God to do something for me, or I'm going to ask my pastor's God to do something to me, or I'm going to ask my culture's God to help me in my endeavor in some way so that I can receive personal happiness. That isn't why we're gathered here. If you're coming here to get some kind of talk therapy or to find some way to build up your happiness or make yourself feel better or get, or get some sort of self-atonement so you can get beat up over your sin and you're never looking to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then you're wasting your time and you're actually heaping judgment upon yourself. That's not why we come here. We gather here to worship the one who is our king and savior. And that's the only reason we're here. So if you're coming for any other reason, except to find out either how he becomes my king and savior and how I look to him, or because he's my king and savior and because I look to him, if you're coming for any other reason than that, then you're disinvited. I'm trying to be rude. I don't want you to waste your time. Go bow down to the culture's idols and keep yourself there and wait for your impending judgment.
But I implore you not to go down that road. I implore you to wake up, to hear the warning, to turn to Jesus and be saved. He will save you. Second thing I I don't want to forget before I go, Jesus' rule, I, I, I want us to know this, Jesus' rule is our comfort in difficult times. You hear that? He is our comfort in difficult times, but those times are still difficult. You guys hear what I mean by that? Daniel's prophecy is good news in a hard world, but even Daniel, after he sees all this, is still anxious and troubled. Why is that? He has a vision of Jesus ruling and reigning forever and of God's people receiving the great eternal blessing of being with him, yet he's still deeply troubled. See, this is the case because he's also seen a vision of the very real suffering that he and God's people will endure. And the hope this chapter gives us is not some smoothed over and unrealistic trust in God that asks us to bury our heads in the sand and pretend like evil isn't real and horrific and painful. Because it is. This isn't the false gospel being peddled by charlatans with big toothy smiles who try to convince you that you should repeat positive affirmations about how you're going to have your best life now while you pretend that everything is peachy. These men who tell you that nonsense is where true faith, true faith is, they're wolves. They tell you that if you have really a faith, you won't agonize and suffer and feel intensely about the horrors that are in this world, but they speak lies to you. True faith and hope shined most brightly where? In Jesus. And where did it shine most brightly in Jesus? It shined most brightly in Jesus when Jesus perfectly agonized over his own suffering and death. And as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't say, Think positive. All things are going to go well for me. It's not what he did, is it? He didn't repeat positive affirmations about how he could have his best life now or how he could become a better version of himself. He didn't do any of that stuff, did he? What did he do? He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to suffer this way. Yet not my will, but thine be done. But I will suffer this way because I trust you. This is the kind of faith and hope that stands up when your nation falls down around you. When your family dies. When your fortune is lost. When your body is ravaged by disease. When injustice prevails and evil is on the march. That's the kind of hope that can even stand in the day when the Antichrist is destroying the people of God. It's the kind of hope that believers have That while we may be greatly distressed by our present suffering, we will receive a future glory. It's the kind of hope that says with the Apostle Paul that I I do not consider the sufferings of this present time worth being compared to the glory to be revealed to us. It's the kind of hope that trusts in Jesus and looks to Jesus and longs for the day when the Son of Man will come with the clouds in power and great glory and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We may suffer times of great distress now, but we have an even greater hope. Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them into springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Even so, come soon, Lord Jesus come soon. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we walk through what can be difficult texts, texts that are foreign to us in the way that they speak about life, the kind of visions they portray, we ask that your spirit would give us understanding, that you would apply this to us, that we would be a people who look to your son who recognize that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who recognize that you as the Ancient of Days have given all authority in heaven and earth to him, that we would look to him, that we would worship him, that we would declare him to the nations, that many would be saved as you build your kingdom. And Father, we long for the day that we might receive Receive that kingdom in its full consummated glory with the return of your son, Jesus. May he come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.